Hi there, Megan Thompson with Megan Thompson Coaching, and today we're going to cover the difference between ADHD and the highly sensitive personality trait, also known as sensory processing sensitivity. So if you're parenting a highly sensitive child or a kiddo who feels big feelings, and uh, this is a child or a teenager, we'll cover that in a minute, related to, and, and you're, what you're noticing is that their behavior is uh, focused on big, major outbursts, uh, explosive behavior, destructive behavior, aggressive behavior, like hitting, kicking, screaming, throwing things, running away, um, or meltdowns when it comes down to tasks required of them, like uh, chores or homework. And you're wondering whether or not those meltdowns are caused by the highly sensitive trait and, and being stuck in the meltdown cycle, or if your child has ADHD, in terms of, uh, you know, maybe you've read something on the internet about how kids with ADHD can also have big behavioral outbursts, then today is your lucky day. We're gonna cover all, all of the things related to that and as much as we can in, in, uh, in, in today's show. Um, and, and so make sure that you stick around and uh, let's get started. Hello and welcome to How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. I'm your host, Megan Thompson, licensed clinical professional counselor and registered play therapist supervisor. We at MTC teach parents how to eliminate the daily meltdown and shutdown cycle for your sensitive children and teens. Highly sensitive children make up 15 to 20% of the population, according to research that has been gathered for over a century. And this podcast answers one question. How can you raise emotionally intelligent children? Stop walking on eggshells and help your child express their needs safely without punishments, yelling, or coddling. If you want to know the answer, you're in the right place. Okay, so the first thing that I want to cover is how do I know what I'm talking about, right? I'm a, a parent coach and consultant, mental health consultant, and I've been working in the mental health field outside of my master's degree, post-master's degree, for over a decade. And with that being said, it's really important that you know more about my expertise, right? And I don't cover that every show because that would be redundant. Um, what you've heard me say, and if you've listened to more than one show, is that we help parents of highly sensitive kids and teens eliminate the meltdown or shutdown cycle that is happening in their homes daily, multiple times a day, multiple times a week, okay? So that frequency is our specialty. Now, with that being said, we help parents do this with, uh, with their children who are in elementary, early elementary, pre-K, all the way through elementary age, middle school age, just by working with the parents alone. And we can do, we can break out of this cycle with our clients, we do that in as little as eight weeks. And then with the parents that we work with uh, and their teenagers, we also work with teenagers. And uh, that's that's combined service, teens and parents together in, in the work that we do with teens. And those teens are typically isolating, shutting down, refusing to get work done, um, and, and procrastination is, is typically relevant here, which might be a, um, a buzzword for you if you're looking up uh, whether or not your child or your teen fits the criteria for ADHD. 
and whether or not you're in the right place here uh, with following what we have to say here at MTC. And those teens um, are typically the behaviors that parents are looking to address are refusals, isolation, uh, procrastination, just staying in their room, shutting down, etc. So we, we help parents and teens together eliminate that cycle as well. Um, and so the important component that we're going to cover today um, is, is the fact that we've helped hundreds of families do this around the world through the coaching work that we do at MTC. And it's also true that before I started MTC for several years ago, I had been doing this in a private practice and I still run that private practice, though I have clinicians who work for me um, at this point and they're doing more of the direct service work than I am because my direct service is focused in our, in our coaching company. Those are two separate companies. So since you're finding me through this company, I don't talk about the other company a lot because uh, people can get confused. Transformational coaching is completely different in terms of its service provision than uh, mental health therapy. And so it's really important that not only do I keep uh, both companies separate so people don't get confused, uh, but also that you understand that the timeline is different in, in terms of how swiftly we can help parents break out of this pattern uh, when, when you're fit for coaching. And that timeline is obviously not relevant when children that we work with in our mental health private practice are engaging in active suicidal actions, uh, taking action on those suicidal thoughts and uh, in and out of the hospital by the time they come to us or we're working to keep them out of the hospital in the first place. They might've been to multiple therapists before they came to our door. And that's our specialty in the mental health private practice. So um, we'll cover a little bit about that today because uh, when we think about the, the distinction of ADHD and a personality trait like sensory processing sensitivity, it's really important that you know your, your information is coming from a professional. Okay, so let's, um, let's roll down uh, resume lane <laughs> um, today, okay? Uh, let's give my, um, my, my quiet LinkedIn profile a little bit of life today in, in the show, okay? So um, that was a joke because I don't, I, I'm not often on LinkedIn. But um, okay, so first things first, um, some of you might know that my, that personally, uh, my sister's highly sensitive, so uh, I'm two years older than her, which means I, my, my whole conscious life, <laughs> memory conscious life, um, has included a highly sensitive family member, okay? And uh, though we didn't know my sister was highly sensitive, uh, we did identify her as more of a black sheep in the sense of, of um, not really understanding her needs and, and there was chronic invalidation in, in the home uh, for my sister's big emotions because we, none of, none, the rest of us are not highly sensitive. And my parents were doing the best they could, but they just simply didn't know and they used traditional parenting strategies like timeouts and punishments and uh, lectures and shaming and soap in the mouth and spankings occasionally. Um, and, and that was like way better than how they were raised. And so they were, they were trying to level up there. Um, but it's all they knew. We were parented in the eighties and, um, the information on effective parenting and helping parents, uh, build effective, emotionally sound and safe relationships was just simply not around. I mean, my mom read Dr. Green's The Explosive Child, um, when my my sister was, was young. Um, and, and I remember reading it in high school because I was interested in the field at, at that point. Um, but that didn't 
uh, that didn't shift the paradigm in my family. Um, so, so we have the personal experience, right? Uh, you know, that's, that's important. Um, but then when we think about my professional experience, that started when I was a senior in high school. Um, I started my, my focus on um, working in the mental health field. Earlier than that, I was working, I was uh, mentored and, and had conversations through the community with other social workers in the area um, and through either my church or um, through my, my mom's relationships because my mom worked in the school systems. Um, and so I was able to speak with people. I wanted to initially be a lawyer, um, but what I and, and work with work in the juvenile justice system. But what I noticed is that I actually wanted to get out ahead of that. So I, I spoke with um, you know different different people in the community who worked in the mental health field, and um, was able to arrange my first internship through a program in my high school. And that internship was at a residential treatment set facility, one of the only ones in the state of Massachusetts, uh, who worked with, with young children. So these are kids who are five, six, seven, uh, removed from their homes, either because of their big intense um, emotional experiences, their outbursts were out of control to the point where um, the professionals involved in their lives as well as their family members had noticed their behavior could not keep them safe in their homes okay um, it's also true that some of the children uh, were were victims of significant abuse and so those children um, were removed from their homes uh, for their own safety and their behavior their, uh, uh, played out their trauma right if you're abused you're gonna get um, you're gonna get aggressive um, in most circumstances or you'll start to hurt yourself in other circumstances and so when we think about um, that intensity, I witnessed that intensity at, at an early age in my um, professional career at, because for me and, and just the way that I'm built, um, I knew what I was going to do in high school and that didn't change. Like I still do, I, I still work with kids with big explosive behaviors. Um, coming up on 20 years later <laughs> uh, at this point, the time of the recording of this show. So I'm pretty decisive and I know what I want, so I get it, I get it early. Um, and, and, and that's just been something that I've been able to, to have, um, you know, the blessings and privileges in my life to have achieved um, and arranged early. And um, with that being said, um, my other, other experiences in, in direct service at extreme levels of service, noticing kids with pretty extreme behaviors. Um, I've had internships in juvenile detention centers. I've worked in residential treatment centers. This is something that you guys um, have probably heard me speak about more regularly, um, where those children, adolescents, were um, removed from their homes because of the safety issue as well, but they were older. They were middle school, high school aged, and these children were either raised in invalidating homes um, in the sense that their parents just simply didn't understand them and they were highly sensitive and their behavior got so extreme to the point where they were chronically suicidal, self-harming consistently, um, and, and parents just couldn't keep, uh, keep them safe in their homes and, and they were in and out of the hospital so much so that they were removed into a residential treatment center, six months to a year placement. Um, or uh, these children were also abused and their behavior became so uh, intense that they were they were removed and, and they needed a different place to live that, that was um, in a locked door facility. And, um, and then the, the other side of that and the same facility, we also worked with children, teenagers, who had a juvenile uh, offense record. And so these kids got in trouble with the law, but um, the state, you know, the, the, the professionals in the state had, had noticed that the cause of their ineffective behavior 
um, unlawful behavior was because of their mental health issues. So um, they were they were put in a position uh, to to receive mental health treatment while they also had um, a, a Department of Justice uh, record. And so to to say I've been exposed to the gamut <laughs> is a little bit of an understatement um, because I've also worked in outpatient and um, community mental health settings as well prior to starting my own companies and uh, running my own practice and coaching company as well. So um, I've worked with families uh, also who have, um, you know, outside of those, uh, um, you know, where the children were removed from the homes and uh, placed in, in and out of the home placement. Um, I've also worked with, with children before they got to that point, um, refugees, uh, because I worked outside of DC. So um, these are children who have escaped um, gang-torn uh, countries, uh, war-torn countries, and uh, there's, a, there's a, a really big um, refugee population in, um, in, in DC. And then also um, ch you know, children and families who are, who are um, underserved with a lower socioeconomic status. And the county government that I worked for at that point, um, we, served, we served that population, high Spanish-speaking population as well as um, Middle Eastern population. And so when we think about uh, the needs of families who are coming from war-torn countries, uh, there's an obvious significant amount of trauma that the families have experienced to include domestic violence, uh, physical abuse in the home of the children, um, in terms of, as well as uh, sexual abuse or other emotional abuse, abuse trauma that I, I treated and as a therapist. And then also uh, we worked with the families directly to um, to support um, them in, in, in breaking out of those patterns more effectively. And some of the children um, uh, engaged in such significant behaviors that they weren't able to maintain the care at um, the, receiving the care at, in an outpatient setting. So I was involved in them being, um, being referred to a higher level of care to include hospital or um, residential care. And so when we think about um, my experience in, in all of this, uh, my training was, was really a, um, a key component to this. So um, again, just blessed with the level of expertise of the, the professionals that I worked for in, in that setting. Um, they were, uh, the, my supervisors were, um, they were just diamonds in the rough, man. Like the team that I ended up on had like the biggest heart and the biggest level of dedication to, um, you know, to, to really excellent care um, for the, these families that we served and, um, and, and, and focus on true to the research, uh, evidence-based work um, and understanding how children, um, how children experience the world through play and, and communication um, as, you know, as, as the core need for, for ineffective behavior was, was something that I learned throughout my entire um, mental health um, professional experience. And um, I, was, I was privileged enough to work with such a phenomenal um, organization that I was trained uh, by, by published authors, um, you know, train the trainer training where I was mentored for many years. 
um, by uh, really, really significant people in the field of, of child play therapy, of, um, of, of trauma-focused care. And so um, as much as that's relevant uh, for, you know, for, for me and my expertise, what's important for you to know is that I've experienced and worked with successfully um, children who have experienced meltdowns due to trauma, children who have experienced meltdowns due to ADHD, children who have experienced meltdowns due to growing up in an invalidating environment where there's, it's purely a mismatched parenting experience and uh, they're highly sensitive. And so that's been my whole entire career. It's pretty effective uh, and easy for me to notice the difference in, in what's leading to these um, uh, what, what's leading to the meltdowns, and this is why you're here, because the way that we write here at MTC, the way that I, I communicate uh, our expertise, the way that I describe the problem that you're having, um, that's all based on my experience of the highly sensitive meltdown cycle compared to the ADHD meltdown or outburst uh, patterns that you might see, or uh, the trauma meltdown cycle. And so when we think about the challenges that you're seeing, if you've if, if you've resonated with what we have to say, there's a very high likelihood that your kid's highly sensitive, even if you don't think they check all the boxes. Um, but we're gonna cover this today because um, the, the, this, is, this is tricky, right? I mean, I'm not gonna give you a master's degree in a 45 minute or, or less, I don't know how long I'll talk today, show. Um, and and nor, let alone, you know, download my entire decades plus, you know, if you wanna talk pre, pre-masters, two decades plus um, years of experience in this field. So, um, you know, we're, I'm gonna speak in a way that helps you understand you're in the right place um, or decide you're not and, and get that clarity today. So, so that's the objective of today's uh, training. And so um, we think about the importance of understanding, and this is just for are my kids meltdowns due to an ADHD diagnosis that's unmet um, or uh, is my kid diagnosed with ADHD and maybe I need to rethink that and, and, and ask whether or not the professional who has diagnosed my kid with ADHD is familiar with the personality trait in a way that they can understand the difference? Um, or, you know, is my child actually highly sensitive? And uh, the, you know, the, the layperson's um, or mommy bloggers, um, you know, or Pinterest infographics that I've been learning from, um, or general um, professionals, right? So there might be other um, consultants, parent, parent experts, parenting experts that you're following who have more of a, a wide range of expertise, perhaps, um, well, that's hard to say. Um, they have more of a wide range of scope in the sense that they are more generally uh, knowledgeable of different pockets of mental health needs and um, temperament needs, but without the specialty, right? Because um, I just kind of corrected myself because generalist uh, to everyone means that you are going to be a specialist to none. So when we think about the um, important components to this, my job here for you uh, is to help you find that certainty in, in understanding the differentiation between ADHD and, and the highly sensitive personality trait the first thing that we need to notice is that these two are not mutually exclusive. That means that a child can meet the criteria for ADHD, okay, uh, diagnostic criteria, be neurodivergent uh, in, in that way, in this thinking process, in the way that their brain operates, 
and also uh, be highly sensitive because being highly sensitive is a personality trait, much like introversion or extroversion or type A, like, which is a fad, but uh, I mean, a, um, a layperson perspective, but somebody who is outcome driven, um, a little perfectionistic maybe, and um, detail oriented, you might consider yourself to be a type A person, right? That's a pretty um, widespread uh, term in personality traits. And then, uh, whereas type B might be more laid back, um, more somebody who, who uh, uh, tends to follow rather than lead. Um, and these are generalizations because that's not the purpose of today's um, conversation, but I'm, I'm just trying to give you the context of different personality traits, right? So, so being highly sensitive does not mean that you're an introvert, doesn't mean that you're an extrovert either. Um, uh, because 30% of highly sensitive people are extroverts. So um, those two things do not go hand in hand either. Um, and it's also true that um, being highly sensitive and, and having having this um, way of, of um, operating in your brain, the way that your brain works is not a mental health diagnosis. That means that a lot of mental health professionals are not clear on this specialty, um, you know, on, on, on this understanding. You might have heard about it uh, because the, the, the internet can like, <laughs> I mean, you can contact somebody and say, my kid's highly sensitive and two seconds later, your, your therapist can look it up before your appointment um, and be like, yeah, I've heard of it. Sure, absolutely, right? Because, the, you know, but where's the source? Psychology Today. Um, mom blog USA, right? Like who knows, right? So um, we want to just observe when you're finding professionals who are um, learned in this topic, you need to understand what they have, um, what their specialty is. How have they gotten their specialty? Okay. And uh, what training have they been trained on and how have they been trained? And that is something that you can certainly look up um, and ask about. And again, like I said, um, I just kind of gave you a, a high level overview of my experience, my expertise, and um, you, know, you, can, you, can, you can find other ways to, to look that up to, if you want more information from me about that um, or reach out or, you know, I mean, like I said, I have a LinkedIn profile. So either way, that's neither here nor there. The focus on, on communicating this at this point is in understanding the difference, okay? now. Last caveat here, I'm not here to diagnose your kid. I have not clinically assessed your kid. I'm not operating through this show as a therapist at all. I'm not using my license to, um, to tell you what I know. I am using my professional experience um, that happens to have been focused in the mental health field for, like I said, over, um, over two, almost two decades. And um, you know, professionally from a master's degree standpoint uh, for, for over a decade half of that time. And um, with that being said, the focus for, for what we're doing here, if you're a parent who wants to break out of the meltdown shutdown cycle with your child or teen, you need to understand where those meltdowns are stemming from. Um, enough to know that you're in the right place, not enough to understand how to break it down. Um, because quite frankly, that requires a lot of professional experience that many parents don't have. Um, and and I'm, I'm saying that because the clients that we work with often work in the field. 70% of the families that we work with um, are professionals in the field, 
teachers, um, doctors, nurses, professors, uh, therapists, psychologists, etc. Um, and and that, that you know that that level of expertise doesn't mean uh, that you will understand the tree enough to break out of the meltdown cycle yourself. So um, again, let's get to the point, Meg. <laughs> um, how does my kid have these meltdowns? Why? Where are they coming from, right? Um, so let's understand the personality trait. Now, the highly sensitive personality trait has four components. Depth of processing, being easily overstimulated, emotionally reactive or responsive to the environment and highly empathetic, and then sensitive uh, to subtleties in the environment, which may or may not be sensory subtle, uh, subtleties. So sensory meaning touch, taste, smell, uh, noise, etc. Um, but it also can be emotional sensitivities, right? You, you've heard the, the, the whole cliche, you can cut the tension with a knife. Your highly sensitive kid picks up on that, okay? So um, for ADHD, there is an important component um, and, and to break this down in a simple way, in a time-sensitive way, uh, ADHD is an experience of neurodivergence um, where the person, the child, is demonstrating a gap in their behavior, in their emotional capacity, and in their academic um, uh, display of performance between ability and performance, okay? So a child might be able to do the work in like, let's use academic, um, an academic uh, framework for this. Might be, might be able to understand the math and under, understand a written assignment. However, um, from, a, from an intellectual standpoint, but their performance does not indicate that, okay? And the gap there between ability and performance is where we're gonna look today because the cause of that gap is different for highly sensitive kids compared to kids with ADHD. Because you guys, if you've listened to me before, you know that I have said that your child is missing skills, right? That means there's a gap there, there's a skill gap um, to manage their emotions, okay? So we're gonna talk about the difference um, in context with each other. So when we think about um, the, the skill gaps in, in, um, in kids with ADHD, okay, uh, affectionately called ADHDers by um, the more modern uh, providers and professionals as well as the, um, uh, as well as people with ADHD themselves. Um, typically, uh, people, adults with ADHD prefer identity first language, which means I'm a person with ADHD. Um, sometimes adults prefer um, uh, their neurodivergent first uh, language, which is I'm an ADHDer. And they, 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 so there's, uh, there's two different ways to refer to somebody with ADHD right now um, in, in modern language. And so I'll be using that interchangeably because um, yourself as a parent, when you want to educate yourself, um, you may or may not go label first. Uh, in, in describing your child if you're certain that your kid fits the criteria for ADHD and um, your child's identity might shift as they they age with ADHD okay um, so we want to take a picture take a clear picture of this um, because 
there are some important pieces around the, um, the definition of performance that don't often take into account the fact that typical educational settings do, are not um, child development friendly. So I'm gonna just uh, say that first as a caveat that today's educational systems in general uh, in la at large expect children to sit down for six hours straight uh, with very little body movement and um, children who are capable of doing that are often focused in their left brain uh, to you know by listening to the rules but they are not actually learning much and and capable of learning much because children need to operate in their right brain and the right brain is creative um, feeling and doing and uh, the body needs to move to do that children communicate through play and you can't be very playful if you're sitting down arms crossed uh, legs you know legs stiff at a desk so many children who struggle with following the rules as their primary um, reason for sitting down um, are, are misdiagnosed with ADHD because adults aren't taking into account how children learn when they're trying to teach them. And so um, this is really, really important because we've seen a rise in the diagnosis of ADHD, uh, but we've also seen a, a pretty clear uh, connection to, what well, correlation I should say, um, to a more stringent if, um, belief in the educational systems that children need to learn uh, to sit down and write and, and uh, do worksheets and follow a regimented educational plan uh, at an earlier and earlier age. You know, kids being sent home in kindergarten with homework um, and, and uh, first grade with, with reading assignments when the average child uh, reads and learns to read between the ages of six and 11 and that is developmentally appropriate. And it's also true that, um, that the, a child's hands don't have um, the bones to hold a pencil. Um, you know, bet between the ages of five and seven, the bone development in a hand um, of a child uh, makes really significant leaps. And, and I know this information because we have um, educators on our team, also because we have OTs on our team. So I'm, I'm speaking um, out of the, the uh, context of a mental health professional's uh, knowledge uh, because I'm not speaking to you as a mental health professional, I'm speaking to you as a parent coach uh, who's an expert and high sen highly sensitive uh, personality trait who has broken out of this meltdown cycle. And quite frankly, some of those meltdowns are happening in schools where the schools aren't supporting kids and learning in a way that they learn. So we have to look at the whole body at that point. We have to look at the brain, we have to look at the body development, we have to look at how kids learn and uh, children learn through play. And it's not very playful to sit at a desk. So when we look at the, um, the understanding of ADHD and the definition of performance, you have to take that into context um, because the, 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 the concept of who's grading performance is incredibly important. You know, we, we work with our clients uh, whose kids are expected to sit down, put up and shut up to be, um, to be blunt um, in, a, in a school setting. And those children are able to effectively recite, dance and uh, play out um, really effectively at home uh, the concepts of what they're learning. But when um, delivered in, an, in a way to manage 25 kids, I mean, there's only one way to do that, make them all do the same thing. Um, uh, you know, because the teachers are doing the best they can and, and, you know, I'm not here to talk about the educational system in the sense that it's, um, 
that there's a way to fix it. It's, it's pretty broken. But um, the understanding at this point is, is noticing for, for kids at this, uh, in this experience um, what, you know, where that, that definition of, of performance is coming from, okay? So when we think about that performance, uh, high, highly sensitive kids or kids who fit the criteria for ADHD or um, neurotypical kids are all gonna be graded with the same definition of performance within some wiggle room uh, parameters here, right? Um, but that performance is associated with the classroom assignments, right? Because for you as a parent, um, you know, unless you're homeschooling, you're not deciding what your kids should be um, educated on, right? And, um, you know, what the deadlines are on that. Those deadlines are designed um, based on um, curriculum decisions that are not often based in science. Um, they're often based on um, decided metrics that beat competitors' <laughs> metrics. Um, so, you know, we're pushing kids towards adult agendas here. Um, and, and so we have to name that. I'm not, I'm not here to, to, um, to, to brush over that subject, but I'm also not here to like fight the man and derail the whole conversation. Um, we have to look at this in context, okay? So when, it, when a kiddo is struggling to digest a ton of information that's not effectively on their grade level, on their emotional and cognitive level, then uh, when we're, we're gauging the gap in visual and, uh, and, non, and verbal and nonverbal working memory, we want to uh, uh, assume that um, the memory um, ability for your child is not overloaded. Okay, so we want to we take that into context. Is my kid in a school setting where they are given space and patience to learn and to recall information? Okay, because, because that ability to recall information when stressed is going to look different um, than when disorganized, um, but the same, it's going to feel different for the child when stressed than when disorganized. But if you have a kid who's having a hard time recalling that information because it didn't it didn't come into their brain in the first place because they were either distracted, uh, aka focused on something else, <laughs> um, compared to if they were overwhelmed because the teacher just chastised uh, another kid or because um, a different kid was upset and they were focused on that upset kid or because a different kid was um, uh, you know, walking around the classroom and they were worried about that kid getting in trouble. That's an emotional motivation to, um, to, to refocus. Uh, when the child's not at task, and that can affect a child's patterns of performance as well. And those um, those concerns about the collective community, that's more relevant for kids uh, with the sensitive personality trait, whereas uh, children who are focused on something of, of a higher interest to them, of higher motivation to them, um, but not really focused on other people in, the, in, that, um, in that environment, that might be more folk, uh, relevant for, for a child who fits criteria for ADHD. So this is one component. This is the, the working memory, being able to recall information that you're working on right now. Okay, so stay on track, stay on task. Uh, you wanna look at why is my kid not staying on task? Not necessarily can my kid stay on task because the understanding of, of um, how much on task your kid should be 
um, is, is one part. And then also, um, because the average child, uh, five, six, seven, can sustain their attention span for about 15 to 20 minutes consistently um, without redirection, consistent focus. But we can look at these kids who are expected to do this work uh, independently for half an hour um, you know, before, before a subject has changed or even longer. And um, a, a younger child um, is being held to that task that is actually not developmentally appropriate um, because adults told them that, that it should be without understanding the science of working memory. Um, so let me go into, so that's one piece, okay? Can your kid perform with working memory um, when calm, uh, when in a um, safe, effective, supportive environment? And highly sensitive kids can usually do that, and kids who fit the criteria for ADHD struggle with that. Um, and, and I'm saying that because it's, it's less of an emotional um, drive for that skill gap. It's more of a, um, a brain ability and brain motivation um, and an attention focused need. So you should be able to notice difference when your kid is home, safe, feeling safe, feeling um, calm, and um, engaging in a similar task, though not necessarily homework, because who likes homework? Um, but uh, you know, perhaps an art project or just learning something on their own accord, uh, you should be able to notice the difference there. Um, the next one, the next category that we're going to talk about is the ability to self-regulate emotions. Uh, kids with ADHD can struggle with regulation of their emotions. We can see impulsive behavior or hyperactive behavior um, in that respect, and that's, those are more clinical terms, right? Um, uh, more strength focused would be passionate behavior <laughs> um, or um, intense positive emotion, right? Uh, and, and you can see that behavior in both highly sensitive kids and kids uh, in ADHD or so. Um, that wouldn't be something that I would uh, definitively categorize as one or the other because highly sensitive kids can demonstrate a lot of positive emotion that can get to uh, the point where they're frenetic. Um, in their energy and, and, and the positive emotion is just too much. And so uh, we wouldn't look at that as, um, as a factor in discerning uh, one or the other. Um, we do wanna look at motivation, what drives a child to be emotionally focused and uh, motivatingly focused on, their, um, on, on the task at hand. And you want to look at intrinsic motivation. So this is the child's general internal drive to get the work done, um, to get the task done. This is related to chores. It's related to fun activities um, that require some work. So say, for example, painting from start to finish in a project, um, Legos. Um, oh, sorry, guys. I grew up saying Legos. Apparently, it's Lego. <laughs> My kid's five. We're not into Legos yet. But, um, and, and then uh, um, I'm not looking at technological-based skills here because there's different factors. We're not going to cover that today. So I want you to focus on hands-on um, or body-focused um, activities that are either fine or gross motor. So painting, writing, uh, coloring, etc., cetera, um, Lego, uh, or 
um, completing a task from start to finish with full body. So that would be like climbing in a playground, engaging in, um, in play with other kids, um, and maintaining and sustaining motivation and focus for that, for the, for the entire activity that the kids are engaged in. Um, so we would look at, we, we would look at those, um, the sustained attention and sustained motivation to participate in those avenues because that's more how children operate in, in terms of um, an appropriate way to assess a child, not a sit down, do this benign task that you've never, you'll never have to do again and is really disinteresting to you. Um, that's a much more difficult way to gauge whether or not a child is internally motivated because the task uh, given to them is boring or um, irrelevant to them. And um, children who are highly sensitive are more inclined to complete a test like that because they're worried about disappointing adults. Whereas uh, children, ADHDers, kids, kids who fit the criteria for ADHD, um, are gonna be more inclined to focus on their own internal motivation in that um, and use that to, to guide whether or not they should get it done or not. Um, and that would be one factor. But we also wanna look at what else helps kids complete tasks, and that is the concept of organization and multiple step direction following. And this is called reconstitution. So the concept of being able to take an end result and look at how many steps or what kinds of steps would need to be put in place and organize them from first, second, third order of business to get to the end, um, that brain concept is called reconstitution. And both highly sensitive kids and children who fit criteria for ADHD struggle with this, but for two different reasons, okay? Um, highly sensitive kids struggle with this due to emotional overwhelm. It is very hard to figure out how to get from A to Z when you're overwhelmed, right? Think about a time when you just felt like you're mind was out of control and and um, you know the, the problem that you had at hand was just too big to to, um, to to swallow it was hard for you to see the forest for the trees right um, because you were you were likely stuck in analysis paralysis which is which way do I go first now that's more true for people who are highly sensitive um, we call this analysis paralysis um, uh, which is which is a response that, that you can also see in language uh, focused on symptoms of anxiety. Newsflash, everyone feels anxious. Um, everyone feels nervous sometimes. So that's not a, I'm not, I'm not going down the rabbit hole of like, is that a diagnosable issue? Um, everyone can feel anxious. But what leads to freezing in that moment is for highly sensitive people, um, I want the... I want to do it right the first time. This is a highly sensitive part of the trait, okay? Um, the highly, high motivation to do it right the first time is, is um, pervasive in the highly sensitive personality trait. And where people get stuck is in the emotional overwhelm of not knowing what right is or not knowing which avenue leads them to the perfect answer. Um, and that's where people can get stuck. And that, that uh, perfectionism is um, a symptom and can be a symptom of the meltdown cycle. It's, it's a symptom of being highly sensitive without skills. And uh, that might mean you as an adult who's highly sensitive can deal with this a lot. Um, and we, you know, we work with our clients uh, who are parents of highly sensitive kids. Many of them are highly sensitive themselves. And we help parents break out of that overwhelm um, uh, life cycle as well because that has that is a symptom of the meltdown cycle that um, 
highly, highly sensitive adults carry into adulthood, even if they've grown out of the emotional outburst meltdown cycle themselves, or just um, was more of an implosion experience for them when they were younger. Um, so we see this in highly sensitive kids. And so um, what's important to notice though, is that the highly sensitive kids and, and kids uh, who have ADHD are going to typically give the same answer. I don't know. Uh, let's get started. What do you want to do first? I don't know. Um, uh, you know, what do you think you should do first? I don't know. But the I don't know is coming from a different place. The I don't know for highly sensitive kids is coming from, uh, I don't know which way to go first to get me to my perfect outcome. There are 700 in my brain right now. <laughs> um, and, and I can't narrow it down. Um, and this is the difference between a non-highly sensitive person's brain and a highly sensitive person's brain. Think about a spider web that has uh, five strings of ideas compared to a spider web that has 20 strings of ideas. Um, and, and that's the simple everyday experience of a highly sensitive child, um, which is that depth of processing component. But when coupled with overwhelm in the meltdown cycle can go straight to I won't do it, I can't. Which is the same response you can see with a kid with ADHD. But the I can't is, I have no idea what options are. I'm sure there probably are some, but I'm having a hard time organizing my thoughts, which means I'm having a hard time noticing my thoughts. And so I can't come up with one or two or three options because right now my brain is feeling frozen. Okay, and that's different than there are a lot and that's freezing me, right, which is the highly sensitive trait. So um, the slowdown experience of a person with ADHD is, um, happens before the generation of ideas compared to the slowdown experience of a person who fits criteria for, for the highly sensitive trait, which is that the ideas are happening. They're always happening. Death of processing doesn't turn off but the um, flood is leading to overwhelm and that's a nervous system overwhelm, um, which is, you know, triggers fight, flight, freeze. And this is a pervasive full bodied level of intensity coupled with the higher propensity for shame, which means that people are gonna think that I am not good at this and uh, now I'm disappointing people and now I'm a bad kid. You know, it goes down the rabbit hole of I'll never get to it, I'll never get it done, might as well not even try, I'm the worst, you shouldn't even bother with me, life would be better off without me. That's a shame spiral that happens after the I don't think I can do it right, whereas the, highly, uh, the kids with ADHD will say I, don't, I can't do it because they're in freeze mode without the thoughts coming to their mind. So this is important because this is a concept of neurodivergence. Uh, if you're not careful, you can think of that as a deficit in the sense that, um, that, the, that this means that kids are limited intellectually with ADHD, and that is simply not true. Their brain thinks differently, and uh, they need different supports in place in order to reach uh, their goals. But with that being said, uh, kids with ADHD can surpass their peers uh, when, when their lives are, are taught these skills. So, so both uh, ways of, of thinking, uh, both neurodivergent ways of thinking are, um, are, are completely um, available for, you know, for high levels of potential with, with these children. So it's really important to understand that. Now, um, 
one of the skills I have, being not highly sensitive myself, is being able to take that information and, and um, explain it to, to the, the average layperson as parents. So I'm going to use these, you know, use words like these children, children with ADHD, children with who are highly sensitive. I'm not highly sensitive myself. Um, and, and so um, with that being said, uh, having worked with hundreds of families around the world and then also hundreds of kids directly over the course of my career, um, I have a pretty clear sense of, of where both um, where both come from and, and I've, I've witnessed being able to see kids' brains operate, you know, see kids think um, in different settings. I've worked in the school settings um, uh, in my career as well, both in the residential school settings but also in uh, general public ed school settings. Um, so um, where am I going here with this? I did write down notes because there's a lot of like technical factors I want to make sure that I cover. So the important piece of noticing that organizing multiple step directions has a different presentation um, in the highly sensitive trait and uh, for, highly sens for kids with, with ADHD, we have to notice that some kids who are highly sensitive also fit criteria for ADHD. And that is double whammy in this concept, in this context. Um, so this is, this is why I'm, I'm saying, obviously, as, as I began today's conversation, um, this is something that, that a conversation with a professional who knows what they're doing uh, has, to be, um, has to be relevant because um, I can give you the, the broad strokes of this concept, um, but there are a lot of nuances to this fact, to these factors, okay? Um, so um, I was f focusing on the presentation of, of kids with ADHD and, and kids with, uh, with a highly sensitive personality trait, and we want to look at the difference between those skills and the important piece that I want to cover um, is that the difference in how highly sensitive kids compared to c kids with ADHD uh, perform and, and that consistency um, in demonstrating um, challenged performance. And again, we're gauging, we're figuring out how you guys are gauging performance. It's, that's, that's a different topic. Um, is, is important because highly sensitive kids who are settled in their emotional experience at that point, if they have the skills or they just happen to have the environment that is calm in that one uh, environment, they can demonstrate that performance and they can excel beyond their peers. Whereas kids with ADHD need extra supports in place um, to learn and to follow through on the task at hand. And that is, due, that is true whether the environment is chaotic or stressful or not. Um, though a chaotic and stressful environment will compound a child's stress too. So um, you may see worse, or worse performance um, for, from, a, from a kid with, kid with ADHD in a more stressful school environment, um, just like you would see uh, that from, from anybody. Um, we, you know, we had teachers growing up um, in the public school system that I went to uh, where we knew, like, we just, you know, as kids, we knew we just didn't want to be in, in their classroom because they were just... Um, just uh, terrorizing, um, terrifying, I should say. And, and, you know, children know that. Children understand that. Um, I, can, I, can, I can tell you the name of the third grade teacher that was like the worst case scenario on everybody's tongue um, in my school. 
and I'm sure you have had uh, experiences in multiple, I mean, I, I've had <laughs> more than one uh, teacher in that setting, right? Uh, with that being said, um, stressed out teachers um, yell a lot uh, or, you know, struggle a lot to manage the classroom in a calm way. Um, and it's also true that many teachers go into teaching to help kids um, and, and, and the, the curriculum is stressful. Um, so, you know, I'm not here to, to knock the educational, um, I'm not here to knock the profession of teaching um, in, in school systems. Uh, I'm, what I'm here to notice is that uh, when stressed out, people, adults, uh, can't perform at, um, at an effective level that helps all children. And um, that's true for kids too, right? Um, so your kids, when stressed out, aren't going to be able to meet milestones that are expected of them. Um, and then that becomes an even bigger issue uh, for kids who are neurodivergent thinkers who have to conform to um, a neurotypical world. So um, those terms, neurodivergent, means that they're not thinking like uh, a person who doesn't fit uh, that criteria. Neuro neurodivergence can include ADHD, autism, um, uh, highly sensitive trait, anxiety, um, depression, um, uh, intellectual capacities that are that are um, different than the than the norm. So I'm not saying that um, that I'm just speaking about autistic people or, or people with ADHD or uh, people who fit the highly sensitive trait because those are all have uh, sensitivities in. Um, in their experiences. This is the neurodivergence has um, all kinds of different categories associated with it. But uh, what I'm talking about is uh, for you, neurotypical are people um, without a diagnosable mental health disorder who don't fit criteria for a mental health disorder, uh, who don't fit criteria for um, a different way of thinking. Um, and uh, then, then, you know, what we would assume the average Joe uh, thinks. Um, so, so that's the, that's this terminology. I didn't cover that earlier today. Okay, so um, we want to look at the difference, um, and the bottom line is that most of the time, um, the refusal to participate, the, 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 that leads to an emotional outburst that could be either um, uh, a no, I won't do it, or no, I can't, all the way to a full-blown meltdown. Um, the, the quick to quit, is is due to overwhelm and the overwhelm can do can be due to uh, an inability to see the forest for the trees right and that's the analysis paralysis or um, the frozen experience of uh, this is this is tricky and I don't know how to break it down and the, your question is too broad for me to um, to organize my thoughts and as a result I can't no I won't um, so those are two different uh, experiences that um, that can lead to outright refusal, which is probably why uh, you, you went down the rabbit hole of figuring out if your kid fit criteria for ADHD or, um, or the highly sensitive personality trait in the first place. So um, with that being said, most kids who have ADHD don't go down the shame spiral. Um, and those are the kids that are often misdiagnosed with ADHD um, because there's a fad uh, called rejection sensitivity dysphoria, and I've made a different uh, uh, training on that um, alphabet soup stuff uh, because some researchers on ADHD 
didn't educate themselves on a trait that's been around uh, for 60 years plus, and instead just came up with their own new name. Um, and and uh, and so those are those are highly sensitive kids. I mean, I would I would I would bet um, a lot of my career experience on the fact that kids who have ADHD. Um, who also fit uh, the criteria for, for this fad of RSD um, are actually, in fact, highly sensitive. Um, and then uh, just in terms of uh, the, the minimal information of what RSD is defined for, defined as, um, compared to the wealth of information um, of studies of highly sensitive people and highly sensitive children. Um, for, for decades and decades, whereas RSD is like is a pretty young um, term. Okay, so um, we're going to look at attention too, okay? Um, so we talked a lot about internal motivation and motivation um, towards interesting tasks um, compared to um, wanting to please others, which is more of a highly sensitive trait that's overwhelming. Um, uh, kids with ADHD are more motivated by interest uh, than they are about um, whether or not people care <laughs> if they'll do it, um, which that individuation is a huge strength. With that being said, um, noticing the collective community and the collective opinions is also a strength. Um, when either of those, um, you know, th those, those um, behavior issues become behavior issues and inhibit a child from performing in a way that helps them stay functioning in their communities, that's when it becomes a problem. And that behavior is the symptom of the meltdown cycle. So that's what we were here to address, not like necessarily saying that, um, that caring what other people think is, um, is a concern, right? Because empathy is important and collective communication is important and uh, highly sensitive people are really effective at, at collecting the community towards, a, towards a, a relevant goal. That's the potential of highly sensitive people and the impact that they can make in the world. Um, but only if they have skills and only if they have the ability to regulate their emotions enough, to organize their thoughts enough, to motivate people towards a collective outcome um, enough to, 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 to sustain that energy to do that. Uh, have a talk on the potential of your highly sensitive child. You should definitely go check that one out as I cover that uh, entire in its entirety uh, more effectively than what we'll cover today since um, I'm close to closing in on an hour here uh, with this topic. So the next piece is that attention, okay? And this is the last one that we're going to talk about, um, which is probably another one that you are wondering about. Uh, kids with ADHD have uh, more focus on... Um, the task at hand right um, right in front of them um, when the task is interesting when the task is um, you know seeming uh, you know when, when they feel capable of completing the task it feels clear enough to complete and um, they understand how to maintain the, the multiple steps to get to the outcome they're looking for and um, they have a way to stay focused if their mind brings up other other um, agenda items. So in adults, ADHD can look like, um, you know, I, I am, um, I'm about to sit down and write a paper um, and uh, my desk is messy and I realize there's a bill on my desk and I got to pay that bill um, or else I'll, I'll forget because I've been forgetting for so long and then I pay the bill and then I end up on a different website and then I'm um, I'm focused on whatever it is that website has. And so one might call that distraction, but it's really just different focus 
that's singular. Um, whereas, um, so the same thing would play out in the highly sense in the in the in the brain of a, a child with ADHD. Um, and the singular focus and, and the short-term focus can be really effective for people who work in, the, in career fields with, um, with short-term goals. Uh, there are plenty of careers uh, with, with short-term outcomes. Um, but again, you need, you need the, the skill set to be able to manage your emotions and uh, feel capable. And kids with ADHD often, um, without those skills, feel incapable and so they don't, uh, they don't succeed and, and they struggle. With that being said, statistically speaking, um, children with a diagnosis of ADHD grow out of it 40% of the time. That means in adulthood, they don't meet the criteria for ADHD. Um, and so here comes my, uh, my point on attention and where kids can get diagnosed with ADHD when in reality they're highly sensitive. Um, and the main concern of their high sensitivity uh, was their inattentiveness um, that is managed differently in adulthood. And so um, it's not necessarily a skill gap in the brain's capacity to, to follow multiple step directions, which is where that uh, you know, distractibility might be named um, and organizing step one to step two, step three, because that's not gonna change from childhood to adulthood. That's a skill you need to be explicitly taught and then, um, uh, and then, and then repeated over and over again until that system in your, and, and systems Put in place to, to learn it and then also like habits need to be built in childhood for adults with ADHD who true ADHD um, can operate more effectively uh, in in the world but they also need team members they need family members who know how to help institute those systems because systems change throughout, throughout your lives um, and they need um, continued uh, self-advocacy skills so so people with ADHD truly fit it the 60% of that population um, you know, who, who notice those symptoms in adulthood. Uh, there, there, are, there are patterns uh, that, that the whole family needs to be involved in and, and, and adult, fa adults fam adult with ADHD needs their family members to help them with this. Um, so that doesn't change. Now, people with, with, who are likely misdiagnosed with ADHD, uh, who quote unquote grow out of it, um, this is more likely uh, potential for, for uh, a missed highly sensitive trait uh, where those children are viewed as, say, um, uh, distractible when in reality they're overwhelmed, um, they're, they're considering lots of factors and that is what's leading to the um, slower presentation in drawing conclusions, in needing more time on tests, in, um, you know, in, in not being able to complete things in a timely fashion. Um, in missing assignments because the assignments are not done due to fear of um, poor completion. Again, that analysis paralysis and perfectionism coming into play, um, which can look like disorganization because if you don't do the work, uh, you know, one, you know, a layperson can guess that that means you're not motivated, you're disorganized enough to remember, right? But highly sensitive kids remember and they think about it all day, and they feel so frozen they don't get started, um, and and that's a different that's a different story. Um, and then lastly is um, kiddos who are, are considering so many factors in the world, and that's what's kind of um, changing their pace. Um, and and again, a layperson might see that as a slower pace, a kid who's not able to stay focused, 
um, when in reality their brain is moving a mile a minute and they're focused on all the things and that's why uh, it's hard for them to keep pace with a non-highly sensitive child um, you know whom they're being compared to um, because if they don't have skills to manage that overwhelm and to focus um, and just take a step and move beyond the perfectionism then they will end up in the meltdown cycle or the implosion cycle of um, I'm the worst I can't do it uh, you know refusal and, and shut down um, which is which is the other side of the coin of the meltdown cycle okay so now what <laughs> right um, like I said I wasn't gonna give you a master's degree I could talk about this stuff all day though um, so I'm going to end here with those components, okay, those criteria. And um, the next piece around this is noticing that you're, you know, as you continue to learn more about the highly sensitive trait, make sure that you check out my show on, um, on the highly sensitive trait, uh, understand the four components of the highly sensitive trait. Um, we have a whole web page to, dedicated to it, is my child highly sensitive? Uh, where we cover this in different from different angles as well and cover more around uh, the mental health industry and the difference between that and um, and and how children who are highly sensitive can shift their behavior which has to be through the parents um, and so if you're you know by the time you've stuck around you've been listening you're, you're clear uh, that your kid fits the highly sensitive trait they might also fit ADHD um, but highly sensitive kids with ADHD uh, need um, need the same approach in terms of shifting their behavior. They just need extra support in, in the schools um, and for homework completion at home. And, um, and that requires, all of that requires a strategy, okay? Uh, you need to be able to understand for you as a parent clearly what your perspective of what your kid is capable of. Um, and you need to shift that towards a more strengths-focused uh, approach and that requires you to understand the personality trait as well as noticing how you're communicating that keeps your kid in forward momentum stops uh, them from thinking that they're a bad kid and uh, that has to come through you the research is um, um, insurmountable uh, maybe that's the wrong word Un uncontestable that's the right word the research is uncontestable that um, that parents of highly sensitive children influence their child's behavior more than any other person, professional, etc. Um, and and so you can turn this around quickly uh, with the right with the right supports um, in place. And you need to do that playfully. You need to be able to do that uh, systematically, which means you need to give your kid feedback in a way that doesn't perpetuate shame. And your child needs to hear that feedback consistently in a way that helps them notice how they can continue to make changes uh, that keeps them out of that analysis paralysis. And you have to lead first out of analysis paralysis yourself as a parent, um, which means <laughs> uh, if you've gotten down to the end of this video here, this 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 show, however you're watching or listening to me, um, you're probably pretty certain at this point um, that you've that you've heard what you need to hear, and then it's time to book a call. Uh, you need to have a conversation with a professional and our team is happy to have that conversation. We're highly skilled at having that conversation uh, and understanding what is driving the force of your kids' major uh, behavior concerns, um, what's driving the force of your emotional concerns for yourself as, pa as parents. And then we'll talk about um, where you're stuck in, in all of that. We'll talk about what you are um, wanting to achieve for your family, what your dream life looks like, and then we'll decide uh, alongside you whether or not you fit the criteria and we fit the criteria to help you get there, um, whether or not we can help bridge that gap, and, um, and we'll teach you that. We'll teach you how that works, and you can get started right away. 
because if you've been trying and spinning and Googling and um, trying and spinning and Googling over and over and over again, so much so to the point where professionals have you um, second guessing uh, if you're in the right spot, um, then it's time, it's time to talk to people who have been able to break this pattern for, uh, for hundreds of families. Um, it's time to stop trying to do it on your own. That hasn't worked. Um, and there's no judgment here on that. We have many, many families who have tr been trying to address this problem for uh, 5, 10, 15, 16 years. Um, even parents who have uh, adult grown children and then have a, se a second round of kids. <laughs> I don't know how to say that differently. Um, and they realize, whew, my adult child is struggling and I tried it this way. And, and now we're going to do things uh, younger, uh, differently with my younger children. And um, there's no shame in that. There's no judgment in that. Uh, everybody has their own perspectives of, of what they feel like they need. And um, again, if you've been listening to long enough, even for today, uh, this is time. It's time to break out of this pattern. And, and it is something that we've helped families do over and over again. We're happy to do that with you. Um, and if we're not a fit, right, clearly, I just gave you like an either or training today. Uh, we'll tell you that because we are highly specialized in what we do. And it's important that everybody who works with us knows that. Um, uh, so you can trust uh, that, that our focus is going to be exactly what you need. So we're happy to help you understand and notice and, and have the clarity on what, um, what your family would need if it's not working with us um, to break out of the pattern. And um, we'll give you that feedback. We'll tell you exactly what to do. So, um, so you end the phone call with a plan and an action step ready, already taken. Um, all right, Cool Beans, looking forward to talking to you and uh, have a great day. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. We release a brand new episode every week, so be sure to click subscribe. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a fit to work with us at MTC, here's what I want you to do next. Head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call and book an appointment with our team. We'll get on the phone for about 60 minutes and we'll get you clarity on where you're stuck in parenting your sensitive child or teen, what your goals are for supporting your child's development. And if we can help you, we'll get you started on knowing exactly what to do to eliminate that meltdown cycle. Eliminating the daily meltdown cycle does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. And we've helped hundreds of clients from all over the world end that cycle in as little as eight weeks. So. To see if we can help you do the same, head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call. I'm Megan Thompson, and we look forward to speaking to you soon.